Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. How many of you know the acronym DTR and what that stands for? If you're in college, when we were in college at least, everybody in a relationship knew what those three letters meant. In fact, I had to have one of these with Peggy at one point in our relationship. It means define the relationship, right? You see, if you're dating someone, there comes a point in that relationship where you have to talk about where this relationship is either going or where it is not going. So it's time to define the relationship, whether you're ready to probably stop, it's not the greatest thing, or you're ready to move forward towards commitment, right? And as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark today, we've been doing this all fall, uh, we come to a passage where Jesus is going to define the relationship with the disciples. If you haven't been with us in this series, ever since Mark chapter 4, verse 41, with just one word, Jesus tells this raging sea to be still, the disciples ask this question, who is this man? And really, for the whole fall, we've been seeing exactly who this man is. This has been Mark's goal for us. He's shown that this man is somebody who can cast out demons. He is someone who can heal the sick. He can give sight to the blind. He can walk on water. With one word, he can stop the sea as calm as glass from raging. He can feed 10,000 people with a little boy's bag lunch. Mark has shown us who Jesus is. And yet most people have been blind to it, including the disciples. In fact, in the passage in Mark 8, 22 through 26, which is actually part of our passage today, but I'm not going to cover it. You did it in your Bible study, hopefully. The passage is about Jesus healing a blind man in stages. The man doesn't get healed right away. He doesn't see fully right away. And it's really sort of a parable. I think it actually happened, but it's a parable of what's happening to the disciples. They can't fully see yet who Jesus is. It reminds me of the pinnacle of American entertainment television, The Masked Singer. I mean, is there anything greater than this show that we've ever put out as a country? Right? You got B-list celebrities dressed up in masks singing. And throughout the time, these judges are trying to figure out who they are. They're given different clues and so on and so forth. And at the end, when they lose or whatever, they're unmasked for who they are. And today, if you're following on your notes, Jesus' identity will finally be explicitly revealed. He will be unmasked. Tell me that's not the greatest illustration I have ever come up with right there, right? Masked singer, are you kidding me? In fact, this text is going to answer three questions for us. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come, and what is it going to mean for you and me if we choose to follow Jesus today? And it's fitting, as we kind of close this section of Mark together, we come to the halfway point of Mark's gospel. For the first eight chapters, Mark has shown us who this Jesus is. He's shown us doing his ministry throughout Galilee and other regions there. And starting next February, when we pick Mark back up, Jesus is going to start heading towards Jerusalem. The whole last eight chapters are about his heading towards Jerusalem and the cross that waits him there. So if you haven't already, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn it to Mark chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 27 together this morning. 
If you don't have a Bible, we say it every week. We'd love for you to grab one of those black Bibles in the seat underneath you there to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word. But let's pick up the story in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? He's raising the question of the ages, right? One that has been asked and answered in multitudes of ways throughout the centuries of time. The disciples give the popular opinions of the, of the day. Some follow along with Herod that said that Jesus is basically John the Baptist reincarnated. That's an interesting concept. Other people say he is the prophet Elijah. You see, the Jewish people believed Elijah would return to usher in the day of the Lord. Now, we're insiders. We understand that was actually John the Baptist. He had already done that. He prepared the way for the return of Jesus. Other people make a simple claim. He's just one of the prophets. Now, today, to use Luke's term from last week, if you were here, perceptions of who Jesus is vary enormously throughout time and throughout place. Today, I think most people would say Jesus was a great teacher. He was maybe a prophet. He was a religious leader. He proclaimed things like social justice, care for the poor. Other people don't agree with even those things. They think he was just a human being who the disciples made to be someone he actually was not. Other world religions have their own opinions about who Jesus is as well. I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth us understanding this because not all religions lead to the same place. Christians make some pretty specific claims about Jesus. So what do other religions say? For Muslims, Jesus was a great prophet of Allah who is second only to Muhammad in importance, but whose true mission was confused by the disciples who wrongly claimed that he was God. To the ancient Gnostics, which you may not know who they were, but that's basically what most of the New Testament letters were written to combat. Think about things like Hinduism or the New Age movement. Pretty similar beliefs here. They believe that Jesus is an enlightened mystic, right? Among others, whose spiritual knowledge can bring about a higher consciousness and union with the divine. In other words, you can achieve what Jesus did. You're becoming more conscious in your mind, a higher level of consciousness. To Mormons, I'm going to quote here. He is the spirit brother of Satan, the physical son of a union between Jehovah God and one of Jehovah's many wives. Just as the heavenly father before him progressed to Godhood, in other words, he became God, he wasn't God. So Jesus progressed through obedience to the status of God, which we can attain as spirit siblings of Jesus. In other words, Jesus became a God, and so too can you and I. Last, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created. Catch that, right? He was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed and is a lesser, though mighty, lowercase God. When Jesus was born on earth, he was simply human and not God in human flesh. So as you can see, right, lots of opinions about who Jesus is, and they're not all the same opinions. But here's what's cool. Jesus is not interested in what the crowds think about who he is or even what other religions think about who he is. What he cares about is what you think. In fact, this is his question to Peter in verse 29. Can we read it out loud together on our notes there? It says, but what about you, he asked, 
Who do you say I am? That's the question. Every one of you, including me, in this room must answer at some point in our lives. Who do we say that Jesus is? The most important question in life. The rest of verse 29, Peter gives an answer. He says, you are the Messiah. Now, Matthew's version of the story gives Peter's full confession. I think it's worth us reading. Can we read this from Matthew 16, 16 up here on the screen? Would you read it out loud with me? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Speaking on behalf of all the disciples, if you're on your notes, Peter rejects popular opinion and declares Jesus Messiah. I'm going to talk about that word in a minute here, but look at how Jesus responds to Matthew's confession here in the very next verse. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Now the word Messiah is the word Christ in Greek. What does it mean for us then to call Jesus Messiah or Christ? Well, to understand that, you need to understand a little history of ancient Near Eastern culture. You see, if you were a warrior of some sort during one of these times and you had a tremendous victory, what was happened is you would come before the king and that king or maybe a priest of the king would then anoint you with oil as sort of a sign of valor. The Israelites kind of took this concept and they reserved it for the commissioning of their kings. Literally, you think of stories like Samuel who anointed Saul and David with oil. That was the practice that they had. And to David, God made this promise that one day there would be, there would come an eternal king from his line who would reign and rule forever and ever and ever. And the Jewish people waited and waited and waited for this king to come. He was known as Messiah. So what is Peter doing when he calls Jesus Messiah? To begin with, I just need to make this clear. He's not giving Jesus a last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title for Jesus. And if you're following, Messiah or Christ means anointed one. Literally, Jesus, you are the anointed one. You are the one we have been waiting for since the time of David. Jesus, I believe that you're the king. And that you have come to overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's people from the four corners of the earth, bring them to Jerusalem where you will establish your reign and your rule forever and ever and ever. If you're following on your notes, Peter affirmed Jesus to be the long-awaited king of Israel. You are the son of David. You are the son of God, he declares. But as we'll see, while his answer is partially correct... It is not fully understood. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He warns the disciples not to tell anyone who he is, and then he instructs them about why he came as Messiah. If you're following, this was beyond their wildest dreams or imaginations. Jesus came to be a suffering Messiah. So Peter is 100% correct. He is Messiah. 
the eternal king from the line of David. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who will usher in the kingdom of God. He will be the one to rule and reign forever and ever. However, the way he's going to accomplish this is very different than from what the Jewish people wanted or expected. He says, instead of using power and control, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, especially by the religious leaders of the day. I'm going to be killed. And then I will rise three days later. Notice the most important word in this verse is, all of this must happen, he says. Must It's necessary. This is what scriptures have pointed to. This is why I came. This is what sin's payment demands for you and for, for, for me. That we cannot provide for ourselves. This is where the law of God and the grace of God are going to meet. This is where judgment and grace come together. If you rob us that verse from the word must, you will rob the gospel. You will rob the cross of its glory. Jesus lays it all out. My kingdom is not what you think. It's a kingdom of suffering. I imagine at this point, the disciples are appalled. They're confused. And yet they keep silent. Smart. All except one of them. You all have somebody like this in your life, right? They just can't help but saying something. We know who that person is. It's Peter. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine this? I mean, just picture Peter, like, Jesus, come here for a second. You got this all wrong. Let let me tell you who Messiah is and what Messiah is all about. Let me tell you what your purpose really is in life. He rebukes him. That is the same word in Greek that Jesus uses when he casts out demons. I rebuke you. You see, Peter's expectations was that Messiah would be a political king. He would defeat the Romans. He would establish the kingdom of Israel as a world power. Once again, he's saying, Jesus, what you're saying is nonsense. Peter cannot imagine a suffering king because he has created Jesus in his own image. And in his mind, he knows what's best for Jesus. He has expectations and Jesus is ruining them. Have you ever had expectations for something that didn't turn out the way you wanted it to? When Peggy and I got married, we were poor college students and somebody offered us their condo in Hawaii and we were like, yeah. Right? Like, all we got to do is find a flight to get to Hawaii, and we'll go to this condo. And so we show up to Hawaii, and it's the big island of Hawaii. That's not what our expectations of Hawaii were. If you know anything about the big island of Hawaii, you have to drive like 30 miles to find a beach. Like, when you think of Hawaii, you think, I walk outside of the condo to a beach. And so we were like, oh, Hawaii didn't quite meet our expectations of what we thought it was going to be. And Jesus is not meeting Peter's expectations. If you're following on your notes, Peter wants a Christ who fits his agenda. He thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be, so he reshapes him and he redefines him to fit his expectations. And my question for all of us here is, are we not guilty of doing the same thing? It's so easy for us to look at Peter and go, oh my gosh, how could he rebuke Jesus when I do the same thing? When I try to control him, 
When I try to make him into my own image, when I try to excuse things that he clearly says that I should not participate in, I am rebuking Jesus. As Luke, wonderful message last week said, our perceptions of Jesus are inevitably shaped by our agendas, our desires, our wants, our expectations. And if they don't meet those, we like to ignore those parts of Jesus or excuse those parts in our life that don't measure up to what we want. I like how David Platt once wrote, some of you know David Platt from the book Radical. He wrote these words, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who for that matter wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity to live as we live out, to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. That one hurts because I find myself wanting that kind of Jesus for my own life. And we all need to hear Jesus' rebuke in these next verses. Look at verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's the same word there. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. These are the harshest words that Jesus ever speaks. And he speaks them to a well-meaning, devoted disciple. Now, he does this just like you and I would if one of our children were walking out into the street and there was a car coming fast. This is a severe warning Jesus offers Peter right here because he needs it. You do not have in mind the things of God. This is the very same temptation that Satan gives Jesus when Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. You can have all the kingdoms of this world if you only worship me. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me. Get away from me. Why? Because it's a real temptation to Jesus to not take the path of suffering, to not take the path of the cross, to become the king that Peter and others expected him to be. That is what Satan is offering him. That is what Peter is offering him. And Jesus says, get behind me. Get away from me. Because that is not my father's purpose. That is not my father's design. That is not the way that the kingdom of God will come. If you're following a king who dies isn't what's expected, but it is what is needed. Only a suffering Messiah can save his people. It must be this way. Now, friends, we have called this series the way of Jesus for a reason. And this text really summarizes that as well as any. Again, if you're on your notes, the way of the world is built on power and control. This is what Peter wanted. But the way of Jesus is built on humility and sacrifice. He could have become exactly who Peter wanted him to be. But the kingdom of God does not come with power and control. It comes through humility and sacrifice and a cross. 
This is why I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I don't get that concerned about elections. I vote. I vote according to what I think are biblical principles. I think they're important. But when they do not turn out the way I want them to turn out, I say to myself, the kingdom of God does not come through power and control. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, Jesus says. When it's planted in your life and in my life, it begins to grow. The kingdom of God is not outside in. The kingdom of God is inside out. So we do not lose hope as those who are defeated. We cling to the promise that humility and sacrifice, the downward way of Jesus is ultimately the path to glory. Enough of that. You can write me at jeff at cherryhillsfamily.org like usual. (laughs) So that leaves us with one more X. One more question. What does it mean to follow in this way of Jesus? To declare him as Messiah personally in our lives. In the very next section, Jesus tells us what it's going to mean. If this is what you choose, here's what it means. Would you read verse 34 out loud with me there on your notes from the New Living Translation? It says, Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Verse 35 continues, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. These verses right here are the heart of what it's going to mean if you choose to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm not just talking about believing who Jesus was. If you really want to follow Jesus. Some people read these and go, oh, these are radical words. No, these are what it's going to mean for a normal, ordinary Christian to follow Jesus. First, deny yourself, or as the New Living Translation said, I like this, give up your own way every day. Say to yourself, it's not about me. It's about him and it's about others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others. If you're following on your notes, I put it this way. To deny yourself means put to death daily the idol of me, myself, and I. I don't like doing that. Because I think the world revolves around me at times. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's going to require putting to death your wants, your desires, your ambitions. And submit to me. My life, my path, my way. Make less of yourself. Make more of Jesus daily. Make more of others daily. Second, Jesus tells us you're going to have to take up your cross. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because this becomes confused, I think, in our culture today. When Jesus says this, I'm making this clear. He's not just talking about hardships and trials that you're going to face in life. He's not talking about your illness or your disease or your surgery coming up. He's not talking about difficult relationships, an unfair teacher, a bossy mother-in-law. That is not the cross that he's asking us to bear. A cross to bear comes when we are specifically walking in the way of Jesus and suffering because of that. Does this make sense? When we proclaim the name of Jesus, when we walk according to his claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, And we are ridiculed because of that. 
We are mocked at because of that. We are made fun of because of that. That is when we take up our cross and follow Jesus. It comes from embracing weakness instead of power. It comes when we decide to live up to the ethics of the kingdom of God in our business, not according to the ethics of the kingdom of this world. It comes when we choose to live according to the sexual ethics of the Bible, not according to the sexual ethics of this culture. It comes when we choose to share our faith with others, even though we know they will laugh. That is what it means to carry a cross. If you're following on your notes, to take up our cross means suffering for living the way of Jesus. If we are truly following in the way of Jesus, we will face some crosses. If we're not, we might want to ask ourselves, how radical really is my faith? How closely am I following behind Jesus in my life right now? Do you have some examples of these in your life? When I was in high school, I've shared this before. I was laughed and mocked mocked by being a Christian. Specifically when I said, yeah, I'm going to save myself for marriage because that's what I believe the Bible says I should do. I mean, you wouldn't believe the way kids laughed at me and mocked me, told me that would never happen and so on and so forth. That's a cross. When I was born, I had a kidney disease that I needed a transplant for. It's not a cross. It's a hardship. It's a trial. And God wants to take us through those things to learn some things. But when Jesus says, take up a cross, I think I'm making this clear. It means Take up the things that you're going to be mocked at for following me in this world and keep going, just like I kept going. Friends, Jesus turned the world's paradigm upside down. If you want to follow him, this is hard. you got to take the downward path of humility and rejection and persecution and self-sacrifice and, yes, even martyrdom for some people, for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. That's literally what they have to do. Finally, follow me. The term follow in Greek means to move behind someone in the same direction. Pretty simple. Don't take your own path. Just get right behind me. Follow me. Follow my way. Become my shadow. Do the things I did. Love the people I love. Cared for the people I cared for. That includes your enemies, right? Lay your life on the line for me. No excuses. All in. If you're following To follow Jesus means radical obedience to his way. Jesus gave it all for the sake of the kingdom of God. We who follow him must do the same today. Many people in America say they believe in Jesus. Very few follow Jesus. I don't want to say that. Not very few. But believing in Jesus is not what he's after. He's after those who are willing to follow in his way no matter what it takes. His call then is not a call to a comfortable life. It's going to involve rejection. It's going to involve rejecting the values of this world. It's going to involve rejecting power and control. Because the kingdom of God is not going to be like the kingdom of this world. Now perhaps this all sounds super depressing and negative to you. Like who would want to sign up for this? But Jesus explains why it's so important in the next verses. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Nothing could be more against the spirit of our age than those words right there. 
The world says to us today, every commercial you watch says, it's all about you. Pamper yourself, love yourself, spend on yourself, live for yourself, do with your body whatever you want to do with your body. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And we've been led and duped to believe that's the good life. Being able to do whatever I want to do, whatever I think is going to make me happy. And Jesus says, what good is that? If you give up your soul. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Do you think these are real questions or rhetorical questions? Rhetorical questions. Nothing. Nothing is worth that. Nothing on this earth is worth giving up an eternity with him. Why? Because if you're following, the promises of this world are temporary. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's basically saying nothing you're pursuing is going to last. So don't make your life all about that. Don't forfeit your soul by pursuing the things of this world that are going to end up in a dumpster someday. All of us have the list of things that we do that with. I do. I get so tempted sometimes when I'm like sad or in a season of darkness, like I'll just go to Amazon.com and I will just enjoy myself and say, ooh, that looks good. That would make me happy. And then I get the thing. I'm like, that was okay for three minutes. Now, what's the next thing I need to make me happy? What's the next thing that I need to buy? We got to let that go, he says. You're forfeiting your soul for the sake of something temporary. Why? Is it worth it? If you're following, because Jesus promises an eternal reward that is far better. The very next verse in the Sermon on the Mount This is what he says. Can we read these words out loud together on the screen? Matthew 6, 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. It's like invest in eternity where things will never go bad. That's what you should spend this earthly life on. Investing in eternal things that truly matter. This is really hard for us as Western Christians because we have so much. I mean, we just have so much. And Jesus is like, that's great, but I want you to do a little audit on your life right now. Compare what you're investing in. Are you investing in this temporary life where everything will disappear? Or are you going to invest in eternity where everything will always be waiting for you in the most secure bank vault you can ever imagine. The conclusion should be obvious. Yeah, I'm not going to forfeit eternal joy for temporary fleeting happiness that will not last. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. I have this quote on the screen. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Freedom from the things of this world means freedom to become all that God wants us to be. Do you believe that? If you do believe that, you're swimming against the message of our culture. But you'll not be sorry. 
As Jesus said in the closing verse here, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Another hard saying here, right? But what is the opposite of being ashamed of someone? Think about that. What's the opposite? Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed by being together with them, loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't want to be identified with me, that's your choice. Just don't expect me to identify with you. But the flip side is also true. If you want to be identified with me, if you want to give your life to me, I will welcome you into an eternal kingdom that will never fade and will never pass away. Friends, if you're following on your notes, these are hard sayings. Jesus left no middle ground. You're either with him or against him. You're either following him or you're not. Now, don't mistake me. Will, will you stumble? Will I stumble on the path of following him? All the time, sadly. Every day. And that's where the grace of the cross comes in, where he says, get back up. I got you. Get back behind me. Shadow me. Follow me. And I will lead you to an everlasting glory that will make anything on this earth pale in comparison to what awaits you there. Friends, the paradox of the cross, as we wrap up this section of Mark, is that it costs us nothing, and yet it costs us everything. Salvation comes by grace through faith alone. Apart from works, we can do nothing. It's apart from works. Our works do nothing to earn us anything before God, and yet the call is to follow him to give up our lives, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, to get behind him and say, no matter what happens, I'm in. I am all in. I will take the path of the cross, just like you did. The path of humility, obedience, and sacrifice. And the good news I have for you, the good news Jesus says here is that the reward for those who persevere is far beyond anything that we can be promised in this world. Amen? So I'll ask you as we close and go into a short time of prayer, will I give my life fully to Jesus and the way of the cross? As you prepare for communion, here's what I'd like you to consider. What's keeping me from that? What are some of the areas in my life that I'm pursuing that are just temporary? Do I love to be identified with Jesus? Am I proud to be a follower of Jesus? Am I willing to be ridiculed for the name of Jesus? Do I believe that whatever this world offers is not worth what he offers me for all eternity? These are things to consider, to pray as we open our hearts up for communion.
Father, I want to pray right now for those of us in this room and those watching online. Remind us that your spirit is not a spirit of condemnation. Your spirit is a spirit of conviction. And the promise is when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. All of us here, all of us listening, sometimes fix our eyes on what's right in front of us in this world. We confess that we don't die daily to ourselves. We confess that we make ourselves the center of the world. Where would we be without the cross? Where would we be without your grace? We acknowledge these things and receive the gift of forgiveness, receive the gift of love. And as we take communion, we're reminded that your path led to death so that we may walk the path of life. For this, we are forever grateful. Help us to be people who set about the kingdom of God here on earth. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.